Well, good evening. If you got your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at tonight. Uh, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, and we took a little bit of a, a break uh, in the book of Nehemiah uh, during the Christmas season. Uh, but we're back in the book of Nehemiah, and just to kind of give you an update, some of the things that have been going on. Uh, Nehemiah felt in his heart the necessity to go back and rebuild the walls. And the reason why he wanted to go back and rebuild the walls is he felt that the people were not safe, that they were compromised and they were in need. And so he goes back to rebuild the walls and he finds out that he is given some protection by God as God delivers him down there. Uh, they begin the process. But the moment you start to do the will of God, and we talked about this, the moment you start doing what God has asked you to do is the moment you're going to face opposition. You're going to have to deal with some difficulties. And immediately, Nehemiah is faced with some outside consequences. Sambalat, Tobiah, and a few other men gather together, and they try to do everything they can to hinder him, and to hinder him in such a great way. But to be honest with you, Satan learned a new objective. He learned something a long time ago that is vastly important that has really improved his tactics. And that is that he can do more damage against God's people, not from the outside, but from the inside. And so we talk about tonight, tonight we're going to talk about the internal attack that happened during the time of Nehemiah and help you understand that even in the midst of when God is trying to do something great in your life, that even those from the inside can create harmful situations for you if you're not careful. You got to understand how the attack comes, but you also have to understand how you need to handle those attacks when they come. Because let's be honest, a lot of times when we face opposition, it's not so much the opposition that comes against us, it's how we handle the opposition that comes against us. Because people are going to want to see how your character stands, what you're willing to compromise, who you're willing to be, what you're willing to stand up for. If you're willing to compromise who you are by getting angry and upset, you can lose vastly. I learned a long time ago, how many, how many of you have kids that can drive you crazy? All right. How many of you learned that some kid's objective is just to drive you crazy? And some kid's objective is to see if you will blow your top. And once you blow your top, guess what? They stop because what have they done? They got what they wanted. And you might say, well, no, nah, man. That no, they wanted to see how far they could push you. Kids will push and push and push. And I'm here to tell you, opposition does the same way. Even as we get to adults, it's not just kids that do that. But you'll find that others will push against you and push against you and push against you because they want to see where you stand. They want to see just how far they can go. They want to see just how far they can push you before you break. And unfortunately in life, you're going to find people are going to push you because their whole objective is just to break you. Their whole objective is just to get you to fall. And we have to understand as Christians that we have to be able to withstand even when opposition comes our way. And we have to be able to stand in a proper and godly manner, even when it comes from internal conflict. Well, look at me in Nehemiah 5, because tonight we're going to talk about three scenes to Nehemiah handling an internal attack. The first scene that we're going to look at is the oppression of God's people, beginning in verse 1. It says, And there was a great cry of the people, and of their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. 
There were also they that said, We borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither it is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Let me ask you this. How many of you like working but knowing you're putting your money into pockets with holes? I mean, you think about that. If you knew that you were working hard and that everything you worked for was just flowing right out and there was nothing that you gained from it, how many of you would want to keep working? You would lose your desire to work, right? If you found that everything that you were working for, everything that you were working hard was being thrown right out the window, that you couldn't even support your families, that you couldn't take care of them, you would be concerned about the character of that nation, would you not? You would wonder why you were even living in that nation. And that's what was going on at the time of Nehemiah. They felt oppressed, and they felt oppressed because certain people had challenged them and had taken so much from them that they were living for absolutely nothing. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, there are four things that they faced. The first thing they faced was starvation in, in verse 2. For there were that said, we are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, we take up corn for them that we may eat and live. In other words, everything that they were raising, all of their crops seemed to be coming in and then going right back out. In fact, it was actually grain that they were talking about. The thing about their grain was they would take the grain, they would get the seed from the grain so that they could produce a crop the following year. The problem was is they had no overhead, they had nothing to fall back on, everything they were making was being taken from them, and they were starving. Now, how many of you are hungry in here tonight? Anybody hungry? All right, so I, got a, I saw a hand. <laughs> Young lady back there, she's like, I'm hungry. I'd like to go to dinner right now. All right. But you think about that. Now, I mean, isn't it funny? How many of you have ever said, I'm starving? Anybody ever said that? Now, how many of you had eaten a meal already that day? Yeah, you weren't really starving, were you? We think if we don't eat when we want to eat, we're starving. These people literally were starving. They had nothing from their crops. They had nothing to eat upon. They had nothing that was being given back to them. They couldn't even produce crops for the following year to care for themselves. They were starving. And so they're working all this time, and they're not getting fed. That's very hard. Not only were they going through starvation, but they were even mortgaging their own lands. Verse 3, some also there were that said, We've mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy corn because of the dearth. In other words, everything that we've owned, we've sold it. We've given it away. Now, how many of you would like to work for a car you don't get to keep? Anybody want to work for a car you don't get to keep? Welcome to leasing, right? You work for a car you don't get to keep. You know, think about if we leased houses and by the end of your life, you have nothing. When you, when you come to the end of your life and you have nothing left over, what do you have? Uh, you're sitting there empty, nothing to pass on, nothing to give to your children behind you. These guys, they were working for nothing. They owned no property. They had no crops. Nothing was in their name. Everything had been mortgaged away so that they could just live. And then there was usury, verse 4 there were also they that said, we borrowed money for the king's tribute and that upon our lands and vineyards. In other words, could you imagine having to borrow money just to pay taxes? And you're thinking to yourself, I already don't have any money. And now even what I do have, I got to go give it to the politicians. And they're going to keep raising up and, and we end up with nothing in the end. And this is the situation Nehemiah was going through. He was the governor of the land of Judah. 
And so everybody was starving. Everybody owned nothing except for the nobles. And now they were having to basically borrow money to pay the king's tax. And so they got to pay back money that they owe because they owe taxes and they have nothing to pay back with. So they have no money, they have no food, and they have no home. That sounds like a pretty bleak situation, doesn't it? It sounds like Nehemiah's in a no-win situation. He's trying to pump these guys up to build walls and to build walls for what? For houses they don't own, for food they can't eat, and for taxes they can't pay. Man, his situation looked really, really bleak. You want to know why they were having a hard time? Because they were building a wall. Did you know that? Typically, while they're building the wall, they can't tend to their crops, and therefore they lose their bumper crops, which is the excess of what they would have to live on, all because they were doing what Nehemiah asked them to do. So now a leader's coming up. He's created a problem that he now has to answer for, and he's got to help these people out. Man, he's got all kinds of situations going on. The people are low because in verse 5, they've even sold them into slavery. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought into bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them. Do you know that's what you did when you had nothing to pay with? You sold your kids into slavery. Kids, y'all need to be thankful that you're not sold into slavery. It's, It's hard enough to feed you guys and clothe you guys. But, I mean, they did. They would sell their kids because that was the only way they could make up for it. They would try to redeem them back, but when you have no money, how do you redeem them back? So you're talking about Nehemiah is dealing with slavery. He's dealing with usury. He's dealing with no money. He's dealing with starvation. He's dealing with all kinds of problems. And he's got to inspire the people to keep building the wall. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where it felt like everything you had was just falling down around you. It just felt like that there, was, there seemed to be no end, no light at the end of the tunnel. That's what Nehemiah is faced with. He's being oppressed. The people are being oppressed. Nothing seems to be going right. There's all kinds of problems. And it goes back to, you ready for this? A group. It goes back to a group that was in the land. They were the people who were the elders of the people. And they were taking everything from the people. And that's what Nehemiah has got to deal with. So look at me in verse 6, where we see the response by God's man. He says, And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. The first response by Nehemiah is anger. Let me ask you a question. Is it okay to be angry sometimes? Yeah, it is. But it depends on what you're angry about. If you are angry because somebody has done something to you, That's not right. But if you are angry because they've done something against God, that's righteous anger. Now, we know that's righteous anger because of what Jesus himself did. Now, I'm telling you, that's one of my favorite scenes when Jesus goes in a temple and he's flipping over tables and he's chasing people out with a whip. Could you imagine if God showed up in our house? How many of you would he whip out of here? How many tables would he flip? I don't know, honestly. I don't know how Jesus would respond if he came in here. Would he be able to say this is a house of prayer or a den of thieves? He was angry, but he had every right to be angry because they had been sinful in the house of God. He comes in there. Now, Nehemiah's upset. He's angry. Why? Because the people are trying to do the things of God, but they are being oppressed and they are being hindered by people that are in the land. 
It'd be like this. If somebody in the church was instigating problems, that's the same issue. You wouldn't expect it to come from people inside the church. And yet Satan learned a long time ago the best seed he can sow is in the church to cause problems in the church. He knows that. Now you say, well, Brother John, how do I know whether I'm being used by him or being used by God? Well, if you're standing on the Word of God and you're living by the Word of God, then you don't have to be concerned whether you're being used by Satan. But you can also stand on the Word of God and live by the Word of God and still act brutal and ugly and mean, and guess what? And be used by Satan. Best person to follow is the image of Jesus. If you're acting like Jesus, you're okay. If you're not acting like Jesus, back it up. But they were angry. Not only was he angry, but he rebuked them. In verse 7, he says, And I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We, after our ability, have redeemed our brethren, the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will you even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace and found nothing to answer. And I said, it is not good that you do, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies. He rebuked them. Can I tell you, that is the biblical response. Are you ready for this? If you know somebody has said or done something wrong, it is your responsibility as a Christian to go to them. Now, I want you to hear this loud and clear. It is not your responsibility to come tell me. I am not judge and jury. I am not God. It is your responsibility. Now, here's the thing. It it always blows me away when people say, well, I need to get some people to pray for me. No, what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to gossip about the situation. You want to be able to talk about it, but claim that it's righteous talk when it's nothing more than gossip. If you have a problem with somebody, you go to them. That's scripture. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 says, if you see your brother in sin, what do you do? Go to them. Approach them about their sin. In order to, you ready for this? Restore them. If they don't become restored, you take two or three more with you in order to what? Restore them. If that doesn't work, bring them before the church. Now, let's be honest. The problem is nowadays is churches don't perform church discipline. We are so afraid to discipline people. Let me tell you something. My daddy never, ever once had a problem taking his belt off and wearing me out. And here's the truth. God doesn't ever have a problem with disciplining us either. So why are we afraid to do it? The reason being is we don't want people to hold us accountable. And we don't want Scripture to hold us accountable. The Bible says we go to them. And we try to deal with the situation. We try to make things right. Nehemiah goes right to the source. He goes right to the men who were using the people. He goes right to the men that were causing them to be sold into slavery. He goes right to the men that were bringing about starvation in the land. And he dealt with the problem. Can I tell you, I've I've tried this on several occasions. I'm a pastor who believes in church discipline. If I've seen a brother and sister in sin, I go to them and I talk to them. Now, can I tell you, I talk to them in order to restore them. Can I tell you that it's only been one time where it's ever happened, and that breaks my heart. 
Because typically what happens, and this is why a lot of churches won't do church discipline, you go to that person, they get angry, they leave the church, and they just go somewhere else. That's usually what happens. It's easy to run away from your real problems. The problem is you go to the next church, and guess what you have? The same problem. You know, that's what we were told in seminary by one of our professors. He said, if you run from one church because of a problem, you'll end up facing the same problem. Same is true with church members. You run from one problem, you'll face the same problem. Why? Because God is trying to teach you a lesson. God is trying to teach you something valuable. You must learn from it. But the goal is to go to that person, to talk to them in order to restore them. I went to this one couple. They were living together. They wanted me to marry them. And I told them, I said, I can't. And they said, well, why not? I said, because you're living in sin right now. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're living together and you're not married. They said, well, we're trying to make it right. And I said, make it right, then separate. You go live with your mama, you go live with your mama. But you don't live together. It's that simple. You separate. You know what they did? They separated. They got married two weeks later, but they separated. And I said, let me tell you something. I said, God will honor you because you did the right thing. I said, the only reason why I told them that was I said, look, you don't want to start your marriage out on the wrong foot. Did you know that living together before you get married increases your chances of divorce more so than if you didn't? Isn't that crazy? But it does. Why? Because God doesn't honor it. It's wrong. You see, the goal is to go to them, to rebuke them. Now, please understand, a lot of times people look at that word and they say rebuke is such a harsh word. It's not a harsh word. It's not a bad word. My parents used to, tell, used to rebuke me all the time when I did something wrong. It was so that I could learn from it so that I wouldn't do it again. And God wants the same for us. Nehemiah approached these men. He said, guys, something's got to change. And here's what needs to happen. And then we see restoration in verse 10. He said, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Nehemiah said, I could do the exact same thing you're doing but I've never charged anybody. I've given them what they need to live on. Now, this is the guy who could have taken more than everybody else, but he wouldn't do it because he never wanted to compromise what he believed in. Verse 11, restore, I pray to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. Then they said, they, we will restore them. And will require nothing of them. So we will do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. I said, we'll do it. We're going to make things right. We're going to stop exacting usury. We're going to stop taking away their families. We're going to take care of them. We're going to be a family. That's what it's all about, right? Helping each other. Here's the thing. It always blows me away the way sometimes churches want to work against each other. We're not competing. We're working for the same goal. That's exactly what we need to understand. The problem was if we get to this mindset where we're competing with one another and we're too busy conflicting with other churches and we're too busy conflicting with other Christians, the problem ends up happening that the world out there sees us doing nothing but fighting and never wants to be a part of us. They say, there's nothing different about you guys. You're just like everybody else. But as Christians, we have to be different. We have to set the standard. We have to work together. 
So he wanted to restore. He wanted them to get things right. And I love this in verse 13. It says, also, I shook my lap and said, so God, shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performs not this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Now, I'm going to tell you, man, you shouldn't take promises lightly, should you? My Bible tells me it's better for you not to make a promise than to make one and break it. That's in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you want to know where it's at. Don't make a promise and break it. Better to just not give your word. I've learned the value of giving my word because it has come back to bite me sometimes, but you have to do it because you've given your word. You have to. When you look at this passage, Nehemiah shook out his garment. He said, so let everybody else be shaken out just the same way if they don't follow this promise. In other words, a blessing was put on them if they did it, and a curse was put on them if they didn't do it. Nehemiah didn't hold back. He said, look, we've got to do the right thing. Third, we see the example set by God's man. Look at me in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year, even unto the 2 and the 30th year of Artaxerxes the king, that is 12 years, I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people and had taken of them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people, but so did not I because of the fear of God. You know what Nehemiah said? Nehemiah said, I know what the previous governors did. You see, that's the thing. Nehemiah said, I know exactly what your leaders did before. I know exactly how your leaders lived before. I know that they took the money. I know that they took the food. I know that they took everything from you. Nehemiah said, I'm going to be a different leader. I'm not going to be like the guy you followed before. I'm going to be different. I'm going to do things completely the opposite. I'm not going to take from you. I'm not going to use you. I'm not going to abuse you. The truth of the matter, what Nehemiah was basically saying is, is I'm here to serve you. Can I tell you, you can never go wrong with serving people. You might say, well, Brother John, if I keep serving people, they'll keep abusing me. Not if you just keep serving. They can't abuse you if you have a servant's heart because you realize you're owed nothing in the first place. What a lot of us need to recognize is we're servants of the Most High God, and therefore the only thing we're worthy of is actually hell. But we're not getting that, and therefore because we're not getting what we deserve, we are blessed beyond comprehension. So let's just serve away. Nehemiah was a different kind of leader. He said, I'm not going to take all this stuff. Why? Because of the fear of God. Here's what I want you to do. Next time you start thinking about something you're going to do, think about the fact that you're doing it right in front of the face of God. Will you keep going? Will you get angry? Will you watch that video you shouldn't watch? Will you say those things you shouldn't say? If you were standing right before God, here's the truth of the matter. We need to realize something very important about God. Our God is omnipresent. You know what that means? That means he's everywhere all the time. That means there's nowhere you can go. You can't hide from God. He's there. I had a friend that said what they did one time, and this might be a little crazy, but this might work. This might help your kids out. All right? They went around their house, and they printed these paper eyeballs, and they filled the house with paper eyeballs. When the kids came in from school, all they saw were eyeballs all over the house. And they were like, what is going on? They wondered who was decorating the house at that point. What is going on here? And the mom said this. She said, I want you to know that wherever you're at, God is always watching you. 
She said, let these eyeballs be a reminder. Wherever you're at, even in the bathroom, in your bedroom, in the den, in the living room, when you leave this house, God is always watching you. If that's true, then I think many times if we feared God, we wouldn't go ahead and do it. Can I tell you one time, my dad drew a line and said, I dare you to cross it. I took a step back. Mm-mm, I feared my daddy. Could you imagine if God did the same thing and he drew a line in the sand and he said, I dare you to cross it. Just do, do that. Go ahead and do what you're thinking about doing. I see it. You sure that's what you want to do? Man, if we'd learn to fear God like Nehemiah, I think we would be able to change the world. Look at verse 16. He goes on. He says, Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall. Neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither under the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 of the Jews and rulers beside those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Now that which was prepared for me daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me, and once in ten days stores of all sorts of wine. Yet for all this required not I the bread of the governor, because the bondage was heavy upon his people. Now please understand what Nehemiah is preparing is meager compared to what Solomon prepared for his table. Very small. But you know the reason why Nehemiah did it? Was Nehemiah himself paid for it. He paid for it. He never charged the people to pay for the 150 people that sat at his table. Can I tell you, as a, as a pastor, one of the hardest things that I have a hard time doing is accepting a free meal. I know you might, that might blow your minds, right? I really do. You might say, well, why is that? Because I'm going to be, if you ever go off to eat with me, I'm going to try to be the first one to grab the check. Just know that. You might say, well, why do you do that? Because I don't want to be known as the typical pastor that does the dive and dine, right? You go in and you eat with somebody when the check's about to come. You go to the bathroom so that they pick up the check while you're in the bathroom and you wait for them to pay and then you come back after it's paid for. Mike knows that one. Love you, Mike. <laughs> but I know. I mean, there have been a lot of pastors like that, but I've always never wanted to be like that. I don't want to be that pastor. We had a pastor in North Carolina that used to go into stores and ask him, where's the preacher's discount? I don't want a discount. I'm a regular person like everybody else. I don't want to be that guy that stands out and expects people to do things for me. I'm here to do the work of the Lord. I'd rather serve you than you serve me. It's not about that. It's not about me getting credit or doing things so that I get. I, I just want to do it because that's what God has called me to do. I'm here to serve the Lord. I'm here to serve you. That's why God has called me to be here. I want to be the kind of leader like Nehemiah who says, you know what? I don't expect the people to give and give and give and give and give to me. I want to give back. That's what God has called me to do. The whole reason why I do that is because I want to be a different kind of leader. Nehemiah would not accept the daily rations. But look at verse 19. He says, Think upon me, my God, for good according to all that I've done for this people. Isn't that amazing? You know what Nehemiah says? He says, Just remember me, God. Nehemiah didn't want credit from the people. He wanted credit from one. And I tell you all the time, the only thing I want to hear, the only thing that I long for, the only confirmation I need is from God for him to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, one day when I stand before him. That's all I'm working for. Really is. That's all I'm working for. 
I don't have to be thanked by anybody. All I want to do is hear those words from God because that's all that I'm here for. Nehemiah was a different kind of leader. He faced internal opposition. Nehemiah faced a situation, I'm here to tell you, he faced a situation that nobody in their right mind would have stepped into. Nehemiah, once he got there, he could have said, you know what, forget about these walls. we got enough problems here. We, we might as well just not even be a country. There are a lot of people, they can, let me tell you something. You can go into a church, you ready for this? And you can find all kinds of problems in a church. There is not a perfect church out there. If there is, please do not join it. You will ruin it. All right? Don't do it. There's not a perfect one out there. There is not a perfect pastor out there. We fail too. We fall short as well. But what I want you to understand is simply this. We are called to live for the kingdom of God, to glorify his name, to live as servants among one another. There is nothing better that you and I can do than follow the example of Jesus. And what did he do? He served his own disciples. He washed their feet. He took the lowest job. You know, when I did that spiritual gifts inventory test at my first church with some people, they took it. And then I asked them to do this. I asked every one of them in the church to be what we call a one-hour warrior. You find in some way to serve God in the church for one hour, whatever job, just find something to serve God for one hour in the church a week. It's not that hard. Now, you might think to yourself, well, what can I do? Well, there's all kinds of things. This one lady, her name was Norma Pittman. She was a school teacher. You know what she did? She came into the sanctuary every week and she sharpened the pencils that were in the pew to make sure that every person could write down the notes from the sermons and to make sure they could fill out their envelopes. She sharpened pencils. You see, you don't care what you're doing just as long as you're doing it for the Lord. And there is no job too small. Everything has to be done when we are here to serve the Lord. When you face internal conflict, when you face people that are telling you all the bad things about a church, walk away. Can I tell you something? A gossiping mouth that doesn't have a listening ear can't gossip. Just walk away. You start hearing, and I always love it. They always preface it by this. I'm not trying to be negative. Been good talking with you. I've enjoyed it, but I got to go. If they preface it with something like that, you know what's coming. Just walk away. Here's the thing. If somebody comes up and says, Brother John, you won't believe so-and-so just walked away from me. I'll go, well, it's been good talking to you. I got to go. <laughs> You're going to face difficulties. And I'm here to tell you, you'll face difficulties in church. You'll face difficult people in church sometimes. I would love to tell you, I've been pastoring almost 20 years. I would love to tell you that I have never met a difficult person in church. The longer I'm in church, the more difficult people I meet. Stay true to this book. Stay true to the character of Christ. And you'll be able to face every conflict that comes your way. And you'll be able to face it in the ways of God and not in the flesh. Because it will be so easy for you to get in the flesh because they'll be in the flesh. Don't do it. Stay true to your character Stay true to the character of Christ and live upon his word and you'll be able to face every conflict that comes your way.